1: I'm Jerry Prokopovich and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Nathan Bedford Forrest, the Confederate Cavalry General, famously said, War means fighting and fighting means killing. As unpleasant as that blunt truth may be, war also means things that can be almost worse. Wounding, disease, amputation. It's not a subject Civil War enthusiasts often like to spend time on, but it's one without which we cannot hope to understand what actually happened in those years of 1861 to 1865. Today, we explore that topic through a book called Years of Change and Suffering, Modern Perspectives on Civil War Medicine. Its editors are James Schmidt and Guy Hasegawa, and Dr. Hasegawa will be our guest on Civil War Talk Radio.
2: The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Are you wondering how to jumpstart your life while bringing more excitement and joy into every moment? Join the Goddess Gals, the mother-daughter dynamic duo, Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany each week on radio's favorite power hour, Star Style. Be the star you are. You'll hear from the experts and authors that inspire and motivate you to be your greatest unique self. Plus, in Tea for Two, a mother-daughter brew, Cynthia and Heather tackle the topics and tips that make a difference. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Studio. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel.
1: Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the Brewster Building, third floor, A wing. On the campus of East Carolina University, on a gloomy, gray, cold, rainy February Friday afternoon in 2010, it's raining outside uh, at the moment. It's been raining uh, or snowing much of the past week, which is unusual here. Uh, The snow's gone from the ground at the moment, but uh, the weather has been so bad that even the annual Beast of the East soccer tournament, the major youth soccer event in Greenville in Eastern Carolina every year, has had to be uh, postponed, put off for several months till May because of this weekend's bad weather, and uh, thus I'm looking forward to a glorious gift of free time this weekend, as instead of coaching, I'll be at home by the fire, reading books for next week's Civil War talk radio, or doing something else similar. Um, but not, uh, before I go any further, even though I'm speaking from the Brewster Building, I'm not talking for East Carolina University, uh, not representing any other organization, and our guest today, likewise, will speak for himself and himself alone. Well, the... Uh, Uh, The the weather has been the big news of the past week. The snow that blanketed much of the southeastern United States included Greenville. We're not used to it here. Uh, Given that just about everyone at the university is a transplanted Yankee, the faculty was pretty much taking it in stride. But there were a lot of local drivers skidding off the roads and doing other things. And uh, uh, if we get any snow this weekend, we'll, we'll see more of the same. And, uh, uh, well, the weather's different wherever you are, so we'll move on from that topic with a reminder that your support of Civil War Talk Radio is always appreciated. Uh, suggestions for guests are welcome. I've got several that I am looking at on the screen now that I haven't had a chance to acknowledge uh, to, their, uh, to the people who sent them in, but there are some good ones there. I had the opportunity while attending the American Historical Association Convention a few weeks ago to chat with uh, representatives from various publishers and uh, let them know uh, about Civil War Talk Radio. Many of them were already familiar with it and have uh, sent review copies when when able to to help us get authors on the air. But once in a while, uh, it becomes necessary to go out and buy the book myself. And so contributions to the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund remain welcome. If you Contribute $15 by PayPal to Civil War TR at AOL.com. I'll be happy to send you a copy of All for the Regiment, a, uh, a book about that uh, the Union Army of the Ohio, 1861 to 1862, or a copy of Did Lincoln Own Slaves and Other Frequently Asked Questions About Abraham Lincoln. Uh, if you wish, uh, I'd be happy to sign them for you. If you simply wish to gratify my uh, self-image, just ask me to sign them, even though you don't want that, and, and that would be a nice thing to do. But uh, really, uh, since you're donating the $15, I'll do it either way, uh, however you like it. So uh, keep that in mind. Keep the suggestions coming in. And uh, check out cwtr.org for the latest information on Civil War Talk Radio, as well as, of course, the website you're on right now where you're hearing the show. In Civil War news, uh, nothing much to report in the past week except a reminder that the uh, casino movement in Gettysburg uh, controversy continues. Uh, A local business person is trying to uh, get a permit to put a gambling casino uh, more or less on the battlefield at Gettysburg uh, if you're interested in learning more about this and perhaps getting involved in uh, resisting this uh, this move, check out the website uh, no casino gettysburg that 's all one word no casino gettysburg dot and you can learn more there as to what 's going on. Uh, this this fight was fought before in 2005, and it's being fought again in, in 2010, and, and hopefully won't reoccur every five or ten years. But there's always somebody who feels that uh, a million visitors is not enough of an economic engine to their county. They must have gambling, because you can't get that anywhere else in the country. But there are you know hundreds of sites where you can see the critical battle of the Civil War. Uh, so they must put another must put a casino in Gettysburg. Well, let's move on to uh, today's subject. As uh, mentioned in the introduction, it's a, a book on a topic that uh, is not always for the, the, the faint of heart, for the, uh, the queasy, but it's an important one that, without which we can't begin to understand uh, the actual trials of the Civil War era. The book is called Years of Change and Suffering, Modern Perspectives on Civil War Medicine, and the two editors, James M. Schmidt, who has been on the show before, and our guest today, Guy are Hasegawa. Uh, Guy, are you there? Yes, I am. Welcome to the show.
3: Thank you. Uh,
1: glad you could join us. You're up in Maryland, I understand. Is that right? That's right.
3: That's right. It's snowing here. It starts, started snowing about five uh, five hours ago, and we're supposed to get a couple of feet, they say.
1: Well, that was my next question. How's, how's the weather because the East Coast is is getting it. We've just had this miserable cold rain. It's now coming down at a 45 degree angle and uh they say it might might turn into snow, but we don't know. Uh that's a lot of snow for for uh, Maryland.
3: Yeah, we got lot, uh, about the same amount back in uh back in December and that I think put us uh in the record book for uh, for the month of December. But uh, they tell us that this, this would be the first time in uh, recent history anyway that where we would get uh, two storms of that magnitude. So, yeah, it is a lot of uh, snow for us. Even one inch uh, causes a lot of problems here.
1: Mm. Well, you know, it was a few years ago that uh, New York City had a big snowfall, and, of course, that meant that the national media spoke of nothing else for days. Right. Because that's where they are, snow in New York, snow in you know Baltimore and uh, Bethesda and, and uh uh, it, and, well, snow anywhere other than New York City is not a national story, but if it's in New York, we must all learn about it. Um, so uh, you'll have to suffer in, in anonymity as the snow comes down on you, I'm afraid. Uh, well, when... when uh, the so many questions I have uh, where to begin. Let's start with uh, uh, your interest in the Civil War. Frequently on the show, we have people who, who don't... Uh, make a living teaching or studying Civil War but just have a sort of tangential interest but in this case it looks like you've combined the, the, the professional and the uh, the, the, the pastime but, uh, what, what is it that you do in your, your day job I guess we'll start with that
3: Right, I'm an editor for a pharmacy journal so it's a, it's a scientific peer-reviewed journal so I uh, help plan the journal content but the uh, bread and butter of my daily job there is a uh, is working with manuscripts. So I evaluate them, select peer reviewers, um, help make decisions about whether to pursue them for publication, and then shepherd them through publications, so through editing, through galley proofs, that sort of thing.
1: So uh, producing a book like this is is right up your alley because this is a collection of essays from multiple authors, and that's the kind of thing you, you normally do.
3: Um, yeah, uh, this is a was a little different because uh, they all had to be published at the same time. Now, with a journal, you have uh, a lot more manuscripts on hand, and you can plan one issue at a time. And you know, if one manuscript doesn't come through, you can plug another one in. Um, but uh, the experience did certainly help. Yeah,
1: the uh, you're a pharmacist by by trade. Did you study history in school? Have you was the Civil War a a side interest you've always had? How did you come by this particular topic?
3: Um, Yeah, um, I've always had an interest in uh, history, particularly uh, military history, but never really pursued it. Um, You know, in school, I took the courses necessary to go to pharmacy school, and then uh, didn't really study um, at the university uh, any any uh, history. But um, I'd always had that interest. And then when I moved out here to the East Coast about 22 years ago, I started visiting the battlefields. And um, uh, a couple of friends of ours uh, introduced me to the uh, National Museum of Civil War Medicine up in Frederick, which is only about a half hour away from from where I live. And uh, I thought that was pretty neat. And then when the museum asked for volunteers... I uh, volunteered my efforts, and they put me to work um, doing some research on some herbal medicines that they uh, were going to put on display. And then one thing led to another. I got into the research, started meeting people with similar interests and uh, giving talks at their meetings, and uh, and uh, that's how I got into it.
1: Well, that, I just received uh, an email today about uh, someone interested in uh, history of herbal medicines, particularly going back to the uh, uh, Indians of North Carolina, and I may have to write to you offline and, and see if you know anyone locally who can uh, help in this, this in that particular topic. Sure. Um, and as we go forward, I'm going to in uh, well. Let me ask. Let, let me not interrupt myself. Let me continue as we're going. The uh, the co-editor of this book is. is Uh, Jim Schmidt who as I mentioned has been on the show before he wrote about uh, uh, products, Lincoln's Labels was the the title of his book Uh, products produced in the Civil War era that are still uh, available today, Uh, brands like Brooks Brothers for example Uh, how did you come to collaborate with him? Well Jim has a column in Civil War
3: News uh, called Civil War Medicine and the installments are uh... interviews that he has with uh... people who have written books or articles on civil war medicine and i published a paper on civil war pharmacy about ten years ago and he contacted me interviewed me by email about that and then uh... from that point he'd email me occasionally with questions and then we just got to corresponding more and more frequently now it's practically every day so um... we became fast friends uh over email, and I think only met each other probably uh, three or four years ago, something like that.
1: Hmm. Well, the, the modern uh, modern technology can achieve that. All right. So uh, when you set out to produce this volume, did you, you know, when you're editing a journal, I guess people know the journal's there. They send their articles in hoping f- to get them reviewed and, and, and printed. Uh, did you... Did you solicit these from individual authors? Did you put something out through civil war news or through the museum in Frederick? How did you find the authors to write on these topics?
3: Jim started with uh, some of the authors that he had interviewed for his uh, column and was asking me for advice about who else might be interested and I gave him some names and uh, he or I kind of followed up with those folks and um, ended up with a number of uh, possibilities more than what are in the book right now because some couldn't do it. But um, that's the way it started. I started out with uh, the the people that Jim had already worked with for his column and then uh, people that he or I knew besides that.
1: Well, let's look at uh, your own contribution. You have a a chapter in this book, uh, and you mentioned uh, plants and herbal medicines. Uh, Your chapter is called Southern Resources, Southern Medicines uh tell us a little bit about that well it it's a story about how the
3: confederates uh supplied themselves with medicines for the for the army uh the confederacy did not have or the southern states i should say did not have before the war uh, a large drug industry so um before the war they had to import their drugs um from europe or get them from suppliers in the uh, in the north so once the war started and the blockade started although it wasn't that uh, efficient at first they uh they became uh short of drugs and uh because they couldn't really rely on getting them from Europe because of the uh, increasingly efficient blockade and they couldn't get them from the north uh, very regularly they had to start looking internally for uh for their own resources now uh, many drugs in those days were of plant origin, Uh, and it wasn't that big a deal, really, for them to start looking uh, to that source. But there are also other sources, there are mineral sources and um, chemicals that they could actually synthesize, like uh, ether or uh, chloroform. So that's what the uh, chapter's about, how the South looked uh, to their own resources, uh, natural resources and intellectual resources, to uh, produce medicines for their
1: troops. And this was generally, were they able to meet most of their needs this way?
3: Well, it, uh, their internal um, production certainly helped. They, they still did get drugs through the blockade. They captured a lot. And um, I think it helped. Um, they were um, frequently short of uh, needed drugs like quinine and uh, the anesthetics, chloroform, and ether. Um, Morphine and uh and opium they were they were short of these things, but uh they did manage to um to carry on um so I, I really can't say that they they met all their needs from internal production, but it certainly helped
1: now uh in terms of uh ether or chloroform that, that brings up uh, a question students always ask when when one gives a lecture on, on civil war medicine and battlefield injuries, uh, amputation was, of course, the uh, a, a very important method of, of dealing with injuries, with, with uh, wounds to the limbs. And the first question students often ask is, did they have anesthetics? Uh, anesthetics are, were certainly invented by this time. Uh, did did the Confederacy have enough to go around? I think they had enough to
3: use uh, an anesthetic most of the time i'm sure they and even the uh the, the union surgeons at times um, did not have what they needed but uh, i'd say in the the vast majority of uh, operations where you'd want to use something like that, it was available uh the uh the uh picture that people get from watching uh movies you know the the soldier rising about with someone holding each limb down and uh, him having a swig of whiskey and having a stick between his teeth is uh, probably not real accurate. Uh, most of the time they did have ether or chloroform.
1: Now one chapter uh, in this book uh, is devoted to that subject. Uh, this is by uh, uh, Dr. Alfred uh, Bollet, uh, B-O-L-L-E-T, Amputations in the Civil War. and the, uh, he points out that that after the war the, the surgeons looking back felt that, if anything, they had performed too few amputations rather than too many. I found that surprising,
3: yeah, um well, even during the war, you know people were they 'd see all these soldiers walking around uh, without limbs, and they'd say, what a terrible thing is happening to our our brave boys but um uh, yes, certainly people after the war, and, and in fact, during the war, too, um, some surgeons were saying, you know, you really need to do this more often because if you don't, this patient's going to die. Uh, people have to understand that the limb wounds caused by uh, these mini balls were terrible, and they they devastated the bone. And if you didn't amputate the limb pretty quickly, you'd uh, get a very, very bad infection and usually die. Now, you get an infection anyway um, because they didn't have uh, antibiotics in the, the The conditions were were not sterile, but the infection you'd get after a uh, controlled amputation would not be nearly as uh, dangerous as the sepsis you'd get if you just left the limb alone. So,
1: um,
3: yeah, the the consensus, well, a popular opinion after the war is that uh, they may have been able to do more, and if they had, they might have saved a few more lives.
1: Hmm. Well, we'll come back to this topic in just a moment. Today we're talking with Guy Hasegawa, co-editor of Years of Change and Suffering, Modern Perspectives on Civil War Medicine. We'll be back with more in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio.
2: The World Talk Radio Variety Channel.
1: we return we'll talk about chapter five the privates were shot well at least it's not the officers oh wait that's not what that means we'll be back on civil war talk radio
0: listen listen
2: the world is talking the World Talk Radio Variety Channel Haiti has been hit hard by a deadly earthquake destruction is everywhere You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel.
1: Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Guy Hasegawa, co-editor of Years of Change and Suffering, Modern Perspectives on Civil War Medicine. In our first segment we talked about uh, the origins of this book, it's a collection of uh, essays or articles by various uh, people with medical qualifications, doctors and others, uh, writing about medicine in the Civil War uh, and indeed taking new perspectives. Uh, We were talking as we finished about uh, the question of amputations uh, in the war and how Whereas the the common impression uh, many of us get reading about it is, it's first that they were, were were sometimes or often performed without anesthesia. That uh, seems to be perhaps less likely the case, uh, but it's hard to avoid the the conclusion one gets from seeing the photographs of, of soldiers uh, missing a limb. And, and there's one such uh, photograph on the cover of soldiers with various amputations. Uh, one gets the the impression that, that this was done too freely and recklessly. Uh, but, Guy, you, you suggested uh, the alternative was death, that, that there was no other way to treat wounds to the limbs uh, caused by uh, uh, a bullet from a Civil War rifled musket.
3: That's right. If, uh, if it hit the bone, it usually shattered it. Uh, I suppose if it uh, missed the bone, you might have a chance, but... Um... Yeah, you know, once the bone is shattered you you really have to get all that debris out of there. Otherwise you're really asking for a for a bone infection and, and sepsis.
1: Now, uh as as I said, the entire book is perhaps not, not for the squeamish, uh uh, depending how uh, uh, detached, one can be reading about these events. Uh, I turn to chapter five, uh, and as I said in the the introduction to this segment, the title is "The Privates Were Shot." Uh, that's not privates, as in alternatives to officers, but the subtitle is "Urological Wounds and Treatment in the Civil War" uh, by Dr. Harry uh, her or her, I guess that's pronounced H-E-R-R. I think so. Uh, 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 an MD who begins by describing uh, a soldier wounded, uh, wounded by a ball in the left of the scrotum passing backward and wounding the testis, urethra, and rectum. Uh, in, in classes, I've occasionally used descriptions from the official records. Uh, one that comes to mind is the uh, Colonel of the 9th Michigan uh, defending against uh, Forrest's raid on Murfreesboro in July 1862. And describe. He, he's writing his after-action report, but at one point he says, "At this point, I was wounded with a ball through the testicle, and, and passed out from pain and loss of blood, and uh, so he didn't see the rest of the battle." And the point of this gets the point to the students of. Uh, you know, I hadn't thought of that. As often, sort of the, the reaction a lot of them have. Um, Uh, But many Civil War soldiers must have been wounded in their genitals, and that would not, uh, it's not something the movies portray frequently. It's not something uh, that's discussed openly. Uh, The closest I can come to thinking of a discussion is a story frequently told uh, about Abraham Lincoln visiting uh, the wounded, and uh, uh, he, he was asked I, the story is told in different ways, but uh, the, the soldier's uh, uh, girlfriend asks him uh, uh, where he was wounded, and he says, uh, the reply is, at Antietam. Uh, no, no, I mean, where were you wounded? Uh, you know, At uh, Antietam on the left flank. And she's trying to, to ask a different question, and finally the, the answer is given, ma'am, the ball that struck him would have missed you. Um, that, that's as, as close as the Civil War generation is willing to come to, to openly... Talking about this phenomenon. Uh, but uh, from this article, we learned that, that like the, the treatment, uh, like a wound to the limb, that this was widely considered a fatal wound, uh, at least yeah, at the they, beginning of the war.
3: Right. They were nasty wounds because uh, you get leakage of urine, leakage of feces, um, you'd get fistulae, which were uh, essentially openings from, uh, say, from the, uh, the urinary tract into the uh, rectum. Uh, or out to the outside of the body. They were really nasty wounds. So um, uh, at the beginning of the war, they were uh, often considered fatal, inoperable. But um, as uh, Dr. Hur points out, uh, surgeons uh, learned how to deal with a lot of these wounds and uh, learned a lot from uh, their experience.
1: Well, what what could they do? What, what did they learn to do eventually?
3: Well, I think they learned... Um, um, how to keep the uh the urinary tract open uh so that you could drain uh urine otherwise it would go uh anywhere it could so so they they figured out ways to drain to the outside of the body um I believe in the you know one of the most famous uh urologic injuries uh occurred with uh, Joshua lawrence chamberlain and uh although that 's not mentioned in the uh in this chapter. Um, I think uh, the fact that he survived that wound uh, is remarkable, and I think it's because of what the surgeons were able to do in repairing or at least managing uh, the wound to his uh, urinary tract.
1: There was at least one fictional account, and I know many listeners will remember it, um, but it it escapes me where I read uh, a Civil War novel in which a soldier... Uh, suffers such a wound and looks down and realizes what has happened and immediately kills himself rather than face uh, a life with this kind of crippling injury or or the death that might follow from complications. Uh, Have you heard accounts of that uh, Um, kind of response? I
3: have have not. uh, I believe it, but uh, I'm not familiar with with any accounts like that.
1: And that and that's a fictional account that I'm recalling it's not right, uh, right. Uh, uh, but one can imagine given the complications that were, were bound to happen that uh uh perhaps not an entirely uh, irrational response um, in terms of learning from the war uh there were some very interesting things in this book uh going back to the beginning of the book the pre war era uh the, the first essay. Tells of a sort of mini medical secession uh, that that I found fascinating, having not seen it elsewhere, uh, that takes place before the war begins when the medical, southern medical students in Philadelphia uh, leave en masse and go back to Virginia uh, and essentially start or or reinvigorate uh, the medical college there. How did that take place?
3: Well, yeah you know, Philadelphia in particular was the uh was the uh, center of american medical education so a lot of uh southerners went there uh, because uh, they thought that was the place to go there were medical schools in the south but uh, many of them preferred to to go up north and uh, uh when uh, the, the John Brown incident occurred, uh, I think some of them uh, realized that uh, war was not too far away and decided that they'd be better off closer to home rather than uh, up north in Philadelphia or New York, which would have been the other uh, large center of education, medical education.
1: So these uh, the, these students just get up and go, and they... Uh... They go all at once, they, they, and they arrive in Richmond, uh, 1859, in, uh, uh, altogether. Uh, the, the city actually paid for them to come there, uh, and and many of them go to the local medical college, which I gather was something of a backwater before this, this massive influx.
3: Yeah, I think uh, the, uh, the Medical College of Virginia um, took a lot of those students, uh, not all of them, but a lot of them, and... Um, I believe that was one of the uh, only, perhaps the only uh, one that stayed open during the war. Um, but yeah, they they left uh, uh, as a group, and um, uh, there were there were calls uh, in southern medical journals that uh, at about the same time that they, that's really what should happen. And in fact, perhaps they really shouldn't have gone up north to begin with because uh, they belonged in the South, where you learn about southern diseases and uh, learn how to treat southern patients.
1: That's an interesting phrase, and that appears in, in that essay. Uh, the, when the Medical College of Virginia, uh, which before the war had only a few students and faculty, w- was trying to get students that they advertised uh, that you would sit by the bedside of patients and learn about southern diseases, um, what, what did they mean? Uh, in the, the, I'm, I guess I'm asking you this off the top because the, the article doesn't really go into it, but uh, uh, you know, disease is disease. Well, I think uh, diseases like uh,
3: malaria were probably a little bit more prevalent down the south. Um, I'm not sure what other uh, infectious diseases might be more common there, perhaps yellow fever. But uh, malaria, uh, I think, would be more common down there.
1: The, uh, what strikes me about it is the idea of a, a southern uh, of, of southern uniqueness, of southern uh, uh, some sort of special identity, exceptionalism uh, to the South, which certainly uh, was part of the politics of the time—that their their culture, their lifestyle, their government, everything was was unique or at least different enough from that of, of the North that they merited forming a separate nation and that that would pervade everything, including medicine, uh, come and learn the Southern way of treating Southern diseases. I thought it was right. quite interesting. Right. And, and that, that relates, of course, to your essay, the idea of the, the Confederacy's attempt to create its own drug industry uh, uh, out of indigenous plants and, and, and minerals. Uh, another essay in this book uh, was about J.J. Uh, J. Chisholm, Confederate Medical and Surgical Innovator, Uh, Terry Hambrick, Doctor Terry Hambrick wrote that. Uh, Can you tell us something about uh, Doctor Chisholm and his what what he did for the Confederacy?
3: Chisholm was a uh, South Carolinian, and um, boy, he did a little bit of of everything. He was a uh, medical purveyor for a while. In fact, I think throughout the war he was a medical purveyor. A medical purveyor is a medical supply officer, so he'd be uh, in charge of obtaining and distributing uh drugs and other medical supplies um, he um, was an inventor he invented a tiny uh, uh anesthetic uh apparatus that, that would help uh, preserve you know the valuable quantities of ether or chloroform a little thing with a little two little um, nostril um, tubes that uh, would be placed uh, in the uh, patient's nose um, he invented, uh, uh, improvements to a knapsack, to, um, I think some sort of, uh, wagon to some, uh, to, uh, litters. Um, so he was, uh, uh, an ingenious guy and, uh, also very influential. He had the ear of the, uh, Surgeon General and, um, and he was listened to. And, uh, after the war, he, uh, he uh, specialized in uh, ophthalmology uh, and uh, worked in the,
1: uh, I think it was the University of Maryland up in Baltimore. Now, one statement one often hears is that war stimulates invention. That, that in, in the case of someone like Chisholm, it, it creates an opportunity and a demand for for new things, particularly in medicine, uh, but other forms of technology as well. Uh, that, that you wouldn't otherwise have, and I guess Trism is, is a good example of that. Um, your co-editor, Jim Schmidt, uh, has a fascinating chapter about Scientific American, uh, and Civil War medicine. The, the title is A Multiplicity of Ingenious Articles, uh, and that seems to bear out the same, uh, the same thesis that, uh, war breeds a, a need for this sort of thing. What were some of the ingenious articles that, uh, People came up with uh, to deal with, with the medical crisis of the war.
3: Well, there were a lot of um, uh, patents for artificial limbs, for example. Um, I think the uh, the number of patents uh, in that decade of the '60s uh, was a I don't know the percentage, but increased tremendously over the uh, the decade before. Um, and there were also um, uh, med- medicines, for example, that uh, that people invented. And of course, they didn't want to patent all those because they'd uh, have to reveal the ingredients. But um, yeah, Scientific American um, uh, served as a a patent agent, so they would um, publish in each issue a list of the patents that had been applied for, and uh, they were very active in encouraging that.
1: Now, you said if if you patent something, you'd you'd give away the secret.
3: Is that? Uh, I believe. Yeah, I believe if you, uh, you'd have to reveal the, the uh, the constituents of your of your mixture if you uh, if you did that.
1: So there would be uh, uh, not necessarily every new development then would would want to be patented if the author. That's that's
3: right. In fact, um, some physicians uh, uh, thought there was a, a medical or an ethical problem with with doing that. In fact, I believe the AMA in those years. Um, the, um, Said that physicians should not patent medical inventions. Uh, it was uh, their ethical obligation was to make any um, innovation available to everyone at no charge.
1: So, whereas the patent would, would give the the inventor the ability to restrict it from others. Now, some of these things that were invented, uh, you know, you'll often read in, in books about the technology of war. Uh, Suits of body armor or things, uh, flying machines, uh, things that didn't work. Um, There's an illustration uh, here of of, uh, Scully's patent airtight deodorizing burial case. Right. Um, That uh, disposing of the bodies must obviously generated a crisis, and and people invented things for that as well. That's right. Um, I think uh, I'm
3: not sure if this particular device had it, but there, some of them would have a. Compartment for ice, and they, of course they'd have a little window that you can look through on the lid to see the uh, the body inside. Um, yeah, there's a lot of that kind of stuff, and um, transporting bodies was a was a big deal. In fact, uh, uh, that is dealt with um, in one of Jim's chapters in his his, uh, his other book, Lincoln's Labels. So it's a very interesting topic.
1: And there's uh, it, as as uh, Jim Schmidt points out here, you you find not only the articles in Scientific American describing things, but also the uh, ad, advertising. Um, people would advertise all kinds of uh, new products, new inventions that that might or might not work.
3: Uh, right, and they even had a, a kind of an advice column. People would write in saying, "Well, what do you think of this idea for my invention?" And they'd answer, you wouldn't see the original question, but you'd see an answer like, uh, to TJ in Omaha, that's a great idea, send send your idea in, or it uh, won't work,
1: things like uh, that. So and Lincoln himself was certainly interested in uh, technology and inventions, and uh, uh, w- would listen to people with those kinds of ideas, but... Uh, right. But they didn't always work.
3: And he had a patent himself from, uh, from some sort of uh, device to lift uh, vessels over shoals. That's right. They're the
1: only, only president to hold a patent. As right. And, and when, he was, when he was in office,
3: uh, you know, people would come to him, especially with inventions for weapons, and he, uh, he loved that stuff. And he'd,
1: he'd go out to the Navy Yard or elsewhere and try these things out. He would. uh, A break from the cares of the office. We're going to take another short break here. We'll be back. We're talking today with Guy Hasegawa, editor with Jim Schmidt of Years of Change and Suffering, Modern Perspectives on Civil War Medicine. We'll be back with more Civil War Talk Radio.
2: Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk.
1: Wounds in the Civil War, as in any war, occurred not just to the body, but to the mind. We'll talk about... Injuries of the Brain, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Listen. Listen.
2: The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Haiti has been hit hard by a massive earthquake. Hundreds of thousands of children and families are suffering and without basic necessities. Save the Children is on the scene to save lives. Your donation is urgently needed. Call 1 800 Save the Children or go online at SaveTheChildren.org. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk.
1: Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. This is Jerry Prokopovich talking today with Guy Hasegawa, co-editor of Years of Change and Suffering, Modern Perspectives on Civil War Medicine. And we talked in our last segment about uh, some specific kinds of wounds, uh, some more dreadful than others, and ways in which uh, Civil War doctors, uh, surgeons, inventors, and others Responded to this, uh, particularly in the Confederacy, where ingenuity had to be used to come up with uh, Drugs that could no longer be imported, had to be manufactured uh, With uh, surgical tools and, and instruments, with uh, new ways of treatment The war, as as wars do, creates uh, fertile ground for medical innovation And one of the... Uh, fields of American medicine that that, uh, uh, this book describes as getting its its start, really, in the Civil War uh, is that of neurology. Uh, uh, Chapter 7 by uh, Dr. uh, D.J. Canali describes how uh, uh, several doctors, uh, Mitchell, uh, Morehouse, and Keene, formed uh, together what they called the firm that that essentially invented, uh, or or at least uh, brought... Uh, it brought to the public eye, the, the, this idea of, of neurology of diseases of the nerves. Uh, how uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um,
3: I think uh, one one syndrome that a lot of people have heard of is that uh, the phantom limb, limb syndrome, where uh, after an amputation, the patient feels. Uh, Thinks they feel the the missing limb. They they itch there or whatever. They feel the, the limb moving, and that's one of the uh, the syndromes that this uh, group uh, grew to recognize and, and characterize in the literature, uh, the phantom limb, limb syndrome. Um, these uh, I think all three of them they uh, you know, they were, were Northerners uh, from Philadelphia, and served as uh, contract surgeons and were uh, allowed to uh, set up their own uh, facility for the treatment of soldiers with neurologic injuries. And I believe that was in Philadelphia as well.
1: Now, the, these neurologic injuries, injuries to, to the nervous system, were, uh, again, something you wouldn't normally in peacetime have the opportunity to study on the same scale. But here, uh, the phantom limb uh, was certainly one example. Um, uh, injuries to to the nerve itself could obviously be extremely painful, and there's some discussion of that here. Uh, there's also something called uh, reflex paralysis, uh, uh, which the, the, this team of doctors first reported on uh, during the war. Can, it, it, it seems to be that uh, uh, you get wounded in one place but paralyzed somewhere else. Is that uh, a way of describing it? Uh,
3: that's my impression of it, but uh, of course I'm not a neurologist and would
1: uh, so not uh, <laughs> try to go any further than that. Uh, you and I can—we're reading the same book and getting the same result. And and listeners, you will want to read uh, this and, and learn quite a bit. I will suggest about uh, the the consequences of Civil War battle. You know, one thing this book does, without without ever explicitly trying to, is, is deal with the whole issue of romanticizing uh, the Civil War, uh, one, anyone who, who, who reads about the war any length of time consciously, uh, knows that, that it wasn't fun. It wasn't a big camping trip. Uh, it involved bloodshed and suffering, but one can sort of compartmentalize that and put it aside. As you read about the, uh, uh the brilliant general or, or inept generalship, as you read about the bravery or the, uh, Stoicism with which the troops endure hardships and uh, the ideals for which they're fighting and, and, and focus on those things and, and put aside out of your mind, at least, as you read about these things, the, uh, the awful consequences of battle. Uh, you can't do that when you're reading this book, and I don't imagine that was your, your intent as you started, but, but it certainly has that effect.
3: Well, yeah and you know we've always uh, uh one of our intents was to uh tell like it, it like it was and uh you can't escape the uh the conclusion when you're studying the stuff that it was a a terrible war and and you know everyone everyone must have gotten sick multiple times who was in the army for more than a, a month or two um so it was a it was a nasty business and um uh, although I don't think we set out to, uh, we didn't tell or ask authors to Tell, tell everything in, in, in bloody detail, and gory detail, and uh, and dispel the myth. I think simply telling it like it was does that on its own.
1: And uh, it often is, it's really quite the opposite. Uh, it's not the chapters, uh, not that there are any that go into to bloody detail, but those that are perhaps the most detached and, and calm in describing, and describing, and professional, I guess is the word I'm looking at, the most professional in describing uh, wounds or treatments of wounds that that make you realize just uh, what what a horrible prospect uh, this was now not everyone gets gets wounded uh, who gets who suffers in a war and I mentioned during the break when I get back to that thought um, the last uh, chapter in the book has the, the title "Haunted Minds and talks about what what we've come to know in the, the 21st century is post traumatic stress disorder uh but that was not recognized in the civil war
3: well not by that name they, they had other names for it uh, nostalgia and other names um and uh yeah i think uh in many cases they thought it was a, a weakness on the on the part of the soldier if he uh if he seemed to uh become disturbed after his experiences and they really uh, kind of said, you know, buck up, uh, you know, take it like a man. And,
0: uh,
3: and they, they as, you're, as you're saying, they did not recognize it as a, as a psychological
1: or psychiatric effect of the war. Now, one of the first, uh, the, the case study that this chapter looks at is a soldier named Frank Lang, uh, whose experiences include dealing with the wounded or the dead after a battle and and the the trauma of that experience as much as being shot at uh, of, of dealing with with people and and the remains of people in all kinds of conditions uh, but the the treatment of it uh, again as you suggest was not to recognize it as a uh, a legitimate injury that that deserved treatment and and, and sympathy and that continues, of course, uh, through the world wars. Uh, the famous incident of General Patton slapping a soldier in World War II is perhaps the most well-known manifestation of the the, the old-school rejection of this, the uh, treatment of this as a moral failure rather than a, an actual injury. But, uh, but more recent medical experiences caused us to move beyond that, so that now we have scholars... Uh, 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 looking at this, Eric Dean's book, uh, Shook Over Hell, uh, was probably the first one to really examine post-traumatic stress disorder in the Civil War. But this uh, essay uh, brings this up, up to date. Uh, it talks, as you say, about nostalgia, the, uh, uh, which we think of as, as, as just a, a mood, I guess. But uh, it was actually a diagnosis in that time.
3: Right. And um, um, the author of this um, chapter, Judith Anderson, uh, has researched this um, looking at uh, Civil War records and uh um, has come up with a number of factors that would put someone at risk for suffering a post-traumatic stress disorder. And one of them was uh, the, the reason she brought up the example of this uh, person handling bodies, uh, that that is one of those things that can't put you at risk. Uh, another one would be uh, a younger age when uh, when you enter the army and are exposed to these awful experiences. And I think there are a couple other factors that that uh, that enter in, but um, it seems like uh, if you were in combat for any length of time, you were uh, not normal unless you did suffer from from
1: post traumatic stress disorder. Well, that's the the original catch twenty two. You'd have to be crazy to. Uh... Uh, to be in this war, but if you ask to get out of the war, that proves you're not crazy, so you have to stay right. in the war. Right. Um, the, uh, and Dr. Anderson, uh, who's an experimental psychologist, uh, look, looks at this, and that brings me back to a point I made at the beginning that all these, uh, uh, uh contributors, uh, are, m- many of them are MDs or, or, or Doctors, uh, real doctors, as, as my family is keen, my, my brother who practices medicine at Johns Hopkins is uh, keen to remind me, not, not the kind like me who sit in an office with elbow patches on her tweed jacket and uh, give lectures to students. Um, do you find an interest in, in history widespread among your, your colleagues in the medical profession?
3: Well, you know, uh, I, there are a couple of groups that uh, that concentrate on Civil War medicine: the National Museum of Civil War Medicine and the Society of Civil War Surgeons. And when I go to the conference, uh, you look around at uh, who's there, and they're uh, a large part they're they're physicians, physicians or or dentists or uh, nurses. So, yeah, they're um, they're people who aren't doing uh, this uh, Civil War research. Uh, because that, that's their job, it's because it's their hobby and they're, they're fascinated by it. So um, I think that uh, at least the folks that I'm familiar with, uh, many of them are, uh, are in the health professions and uh, many of them actually have uh, been uh, in the uh, military service um, as health professionals.
1: Well, this is really, uh, I think, a good example of, of, of uh, interdisciplinary work in, in the kind that uh that when his administrators calling for on campus all the time. Uh where people with with a specialty in in this case in medicine have something important to say to uh people who specialize in history uh you mentioned conferences Ta- this is these groups meet annually uh, uh yeah e- each of those things?
3: groups each of those groups that i mentioned has an annual meeting where um last two and a half days and there are a number of you know 14 16 uh, lectures perhaps there's usually a tour that they're often uh, at a civil war site um there's a tour on a banquet, so um, and it's a time it's it's some people's uh, only opportunity to to present their their research because uh, for one reason or another they they end up not publishing it, but at least it gets it out um, to the people who attend, and uh, the abstracts or recordings are often available of
1: these lectures. And say the names of both those groups again for our listeners.
3: Right. That one is the National Museum of Civil War Medicine. And that's in Frederick, Maryland. And the other is the Society of Civil War Surgeons. And that's uh based out in um Ohio. But if you Google either one of those, um you'll you'll find a, a website or uh if folks can write to you and you can forward that uh, those messages those messages to me I can provide those contacts.
1: Good. Now do you see yourself writing uh more in this vein or editing another volume like this? Yeah, I hope so. Um, you know, we've we've talked. Jim and I have talked about a,
3: a volume two um, of a book uh, like the one we did, and uh, that's still up in the air. So uh, we don't know if that's going to happen. I've got a project right now that it's in its early stages uh, that I hope perhaps to turn into a book. And uh, I have published a few uh, um, articles on various topics in Civil War medicine, uh, not just uh, on. On um, yeah, the herbal meds, but uh, other other uh, subjects. Uh, ones on um, chemical weapons, for example. Ones on uh, medical cadets, uh, and uh, so it's it's been a fascinating uh, uh, hobby for me.
1: Well, this is a, a fascinating book. Uh, again, the title: Years of Change and Suffering: Modern Perspectives on Civil War Medicine. Uh, you can look it up by the authors, James Schmidt and Guy Hasegawa, Guy, I enjoyed it. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for being on Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.